Dr. Nathaniel Wilson has already been introduced to this symposium. Uh, his credentials are well-known. Uh, bishop, and pastor of a couple of thriving churches over his decades of ministry, presidents of universities and colleges, authors of several books, no stranger to most of us, and I guess now after this symposium, we just call him the source. He's here again to talk about a Pentecostal hermeneutic. Please help me welcome Dr. Nathaniel Wilson. Thank you, Brother David Holmes. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord. Amen. And um, we are um, happy that this subject was included in this venue because it is an emerging subject of importance. Before I get into the subject, uh, let me say there has been inquiry about uh, uh, where people could pick up books of ours, and we didn't bring any books, but you can go to insigniabooks.com, insigniabooks.com, and um, that's the publisher, and you can order, and they'll ship them right to you. You don't have to pack them around in your suitcase and figure out how to stay under the luggage weight restriction and so forth. Our subject this morning is Pentecostal hermeneutics. And um, <clears throat> there are probably questions about this that none of us can answer yet. The important thing here is not at this session on this particular subject is not to have all the answers. The importance of it is making us aware of the subject and its development and the need for much more development um, and sessions like this move us in that direction, and symposiums like this move us in that direction. So, um, uh, let's begin. Pentecostalism is presently sweeping the world, nothing anywhere, Christian or otherwise, religious, secular, or sociological, is experiencing anything near this global growth. Now, Estimates are that there are 707 million people, a mix of Pentecostals, Charismatics, and tongue-talking evangelicals, are increasing by 8% a year. Uh, they, these are almost all Pentecostal. World population rates are growing at 1.2% per year. This is to give you a, a, a contrast, a comparison. Annually, Buddha, Buddhism is growing uh, 0.09% a year, less than 1%. Hinduism is at 1.1%. Islam, which everybody's so worried about its growth, is at 1.8%. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned evangelical Christianity without including Pentecostals is also growing in that same 1 to 1.5% range as is all of these others. I didn't include atheism. Atheism is growing at 0.025%. Don't worry about the atheists. They're not, they're not cutting it. Um, uh, they're, you know, just minuscule in their growth. Uh, 
but then when you see the 8% figure, uh, some say 7.8%, but whatever it is, um, you can see the contrast of how fast Pentecostalism is growing in the world. Now, this is any tongue-talking people. Ruiz emphasizes the size of the phenomenon by pointing out that at the current growth rate, there would be more of these Christians in the world than there are people by 2032. So, that's kind of interesting. Uh, while this is impossible, it does highlight the rate of growth. The result is that in spite of a century of stigmatization from the secular world and old-line Christian denominations and evangelicals, Pentecostalism continues to race forward until the pure weight of its evidence of sustainability and its power for individual transformation has transitioned the movement from pilloried child to authoritative voice in matters of dynamic Christianity and mission. From the time of the Reformation until 1900, people of faith moved forward with efforts to discern and embrace <clears throat> a return to New Testament Christianity. History reveals the road has not been easy. Each occasion in which new understanding of old truths emerged, the reigning paradigm of the time became challenged. In every case, some steadfastly refused to move forward from the established paradigm to embrace further truth. Stopping at particular revelations, these became the foundations from which specific denominations were formed. A group that rediscovered a biblical truth and binding together embraced it wholly became a denomination. However, in doing so, the unspoken assumption was often that there are particular, that their particular revelation was the final step in the restoration of the Christian church to its original dynamics and doctrine. Locked into that specific insight, these often looked with suspicion and criticism on those who continued further in the pursuit of complete restoration of both dynamics and doctrine of the first church. Thus, the Reformation moved ponderously forward for four centuries as group after group generally embraced what was previously discovered and built upon it with further revelation and understanding. With little difficulty, a progression of spiritual and biblical discovery can be traced through these successive groups from the 1500s, each enlarging on previous revealed truths. Those presently living can hardly appreciate the milieu of this world past. Each succeeding forward movement of the Reformation crashed mightily against existing spiritual strongholds, bringing stunning new freedoms not only to individuals but to the world. The power of the preached word is evident in every period. Thundering into a spiritually parched world, such preaching resounded like the boom of cannons, breaking centuries-old strongholds of institutional paralysis and false doctrine. Expanding revelation eventually led to the Pentecostal outpouring at the turn of the 20th century that in turn created new upheaval, which continues its transforming work in the present world. With this revival has come realization that traditional theology and hermeneutics are also being fundamentally impacted. In addition, it seems evident that theology in the 20th century, a theology that was primarily uninformed by and resistant to Pentecostal spirit baptism, such as is found in Acts 2, omits understandings that became evident when viewed from within this dynamic locus. From a Pentecostal viewpoint, evangelical theology generally and increasingly 
presented Christian thought through a lens clouded with a modernity that left little room for much of the supernatural. That's 20th century evangelicalism. The Pentecostal vantage point reveals such efforts as falling short in comparison to the New Testament thought and practice. Adherents of each new progression in the Reformation saw their fresh understandings as contributions to a return to original New Testament doctrine and practice. From Luther's understanding of individual faith to full awareness of New Testament teaching on salvation was a long journey. Regrettably, each new revelation became for many a destination rather than part of a pivotal point on the spiritual journey. An early example of this can be seen in Luther's insistence on how the Spirit makes itself known to the individual by coming externally. It comes through hearing the preaching of the Word as well as the recorded miracles. One sees these as their own, but this is done objectively. Quote, the Spirit directs one away from himself to a history which is outside him, even though it includes him, so that it is an external word. Thus, Luther declared, God will not give anyone the Spirit apart from the word in the preaching office. A spirit that looses itself from these is not from God, but from hell. Luther saw emphasis of the Holy Spirit as directing the believer individual away from himself explicitly as a safeguard against the supposed spiritual revelations of enthusiasm, which being direct, that means unmediated through the preacher or the church, are not grounded in the external word and are thus only contemporary and do not include the recollection as well. These spiritual revelations of enthusiasm would include Pentecostals. So he would be very much against the Pentecostal infilling of the Holy Ghost. A Pentecostal truth is that spirit infilling does indeed bring direct and unmediated spiritual revelation. While revelation clearly does derive through preaching, it is this preaching that gestures towards a dynamic, individual, and in the present reception of the Spirit, which has been and always is contemporary. That means at once with Acts 2 and the present moment and is so in both a public and deeply private manner. Because God is alive, he is known immediately. That means unmediated. Mediated knowing is adequate for knowing objects, but alone is inadequate for subject-to-subject -subject knowing. Subjective knowing is relational knowing, that is, encountering a living, living sentient other and falls in the order of the immediate. On the other hand, immediate knowing by which one individual knows another creates a relational reality between the two that is in isolation from the outside world. Mediated knowing, that is, reading or hearing, a lecture, is the fashion whereby the immediate is generalized. Both are essential. The day of Pentecost outpouring was preceded, mediated by instruction by Jesus. In contrast, the actual outpouring is a pure, direct encounter with the divine spirit, an encounter which in no part is mediated. This immediate knowing like love is so actual that its validation can be taken as fact. This is experience or a spiritual psychological phenomenon. Therefore, and let me just stop here to say, um, I included three or four of my feeble attempts to uh, begin to create an apostolic Pentecostal hermeneutic. 
and this is the first one. Therefore, a first Pentecostal hermeneutic would be knowing God is a living encounter. It is knowing immediately. That means unmediated. It is known by subjective experience. It is affective. It is relationship. It is dynamic in extremis. Rather than from hell, which is what Luther said, this infilling was and is a sound from heaven. That the Spirit provides ongoing personal revelation is not accidental, but is germane to the ongoing empowerment for salvation and service. Further, rather than directing the self away from itself, which is what Luther said, the Spirit directs the self to confrontation and contemplation of itself and toward comparison with Christ himself. As revealed in Jeremiah 31 and 33 and repeated by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8 and as starkly illustrated by Christ in John 14 and chapter 20, the coming of the Spirit on the individual is anything except objective and outside the individual. However, again, from a Pentecostal standpoint, grasping the full meaning of such is only possible in the actual experience of the Spirit as exemplified on the birthday of the church. It is a spiritual knowing of Christ. The Holy Spirit is de facto the Spirit of Christ that creates the church. This encounter, akin to any loving, ongoing relational encounter, requires engagement and commitment of the full range of human intellect, love, emotional expression, and volition, which is what Deuteronomy 6 and 5 tells us. That this spirit infilling was normative for Christians is unmistakable. That the spirit enabled them to overcome every obstacle in proclamation was evident then as now. The experience was thorough and complete. God's glory fell upon them, and like the Old Testament tabernacle, fire appeared above each of them, signifying the spirit's work, making each of them the new temple of God on earth. Under the ages of the spirit, they all spoke in tongues, signaling universal reuniting of people groups of the world. The infilling was chirological, otherworldly, from heaven, and radically transforming. Peter the Apostle, with the keys for initially opening the door, assured that the promise is interminable, proclaiming that it is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Interminable means it can't be terminated. It's still with us today. Can you say amen? amen. Whether geographically or temporarily, the promise would remain viable, fresh, and unchanged. Uh, whether geographically or temporally. Uh, what that means, whether in time or place, it remains unchanged. This is the first, the initial, the foundational salvation instruction that precedes any and every other instruction from the beginning of the church until now. Herein are the organic and foundational roots out of which emerges the New Testament church. One might ask, can there be any more logical definition of restorationist than restoration that begins where and as the church began? One might rightly ask, by what standards should measurement be made other than the church in the Bible? What else exists which can be marshaled to assist in such a search? And what else could presume to hold such authority as the original biblical model? Here at the very inception is found the first post-resurrection quest for salvation and the first full apostolic response to this quest. No other definition of original can be more specific. As briefly mentioned above, classic evangelical approach to theology has historically been primarily objective. In the 19th century, and particularly the 20th, the Bible came to be increasingly examined empirically. 
This approach made important contributions. Characteristics of 20th century American and European modernism, characteristic of 20th century American and European modernism, the approach increasingly came to pivot around efforts to apply the scientific method to every subject of inquiry. As a derivative of the Enlightenment, this eventually resulted in attempts to evaluate the Bible in the same way as you would any other book. Biblical hermeneutics and Pentecostalism. Biblical hermeneutics is a study of generally recognized laws and guidelines for interpreting scripture. For example, here's one that's simple that most everyone would embrace. No scripture is of private interpretation. This is a biblical hermeneutic. Thus, regardless of what a particular scripture says, it must be compared with other scriptures that deal with the same subject before a final judgment as to the full meaning can be ascertained. Hermeneutics also includes decisions on methodological questions such as when a scripture should be taken literally or symbolically or allegorically, or are there large sections of scripture, books or individual psalms and such like, that are conveying a mega message along with the obvious messages being conveyed in the local situation at hand. Do individual books, groups of books, or the entire Bible itself contain a message or messages greater than the sum of its parts? If so, what is to prevent the creation of all kinds of fanciful and imaginative scenarios with claims to such meanings? Protestant hermeneutics. Probably the key Protestant hermeneutic that has literally transformed history, I mean history of the world, is that scripture alone stands as the final authority above every institution and that scripture applies to individual access to God and God to man. These precepts broke the hold of centuries of control of Europe's populace by both secular governments as well as the institutionally dominant Catholic Church. Reformation hermeneutics have, from the beginning, been influenced strongly by rationalism. <coughs> Contributing to this was frustration with centuries of Catholic institutional control of the masses through subterfuge and superstitious manipulation from fear and ignorance. For example, during the Dark Ages, in order to convince the people that spirits were moving through the nighttime church courtyard, candles were placed on the backs of turtles on cobblestone fences, and as they slowly walked, hidden by the dark, the moving lights were proclaimed to be spirits, thus creating an ethereal environment of awe and fear. Such firsthand experience of the reformers with crass manipulation of human affectivity and feelings in the name of religion, whether modern-day charismatic charlatans or the ancient Catholic Church, created a deep distrust of experiential criteria in determining one's spirituality or salvation. Trust in a rational approach to scripture became a major hermeneutical building block as well as a defensive tool against the Catholic institutional claim to authority. Meanwhile, the hermeneutic of the Catholic Church declared the authority of the institution greater than the authority of the written word or individual revelation, thus giving right to power even if such was abused to control and manipulate. Individual salvation was held firmly at the whim of the institution. The Protestant church, or the protesters, and the secular world thus rode concurrent waves to freedom from oppression. Exploration was encouraged, and in virtually every field of inquiry, science advanced and continues to advance at breakneck speed. During this time, not only biblical hermeneutics were examined and established, but basic scientific hermeneutics were also established 
the centerpiece of which came to be identified as the scientific method. So any of you that have went to high school or particularly college, you have certainly encountered that phrase, scientific method. Protestants incorporated reasoning and wherever possible, the scientific method. This is easily seen in the careful and impressive exegetical scholarship of the 16th to the 19th century. Scholars from John Calvin to Jonathan Edwards to Adam Clark to Matthew Henry and scores of others. Most of the books that most of us have gone to for commentary um, were written in this vein. That is following the scientific method. That is gathering all the data and making decisions from the gathered data in the mind and then making logical decisions thereby. The scientific method and hermeneutics. The scientific method was developed in the 1600s. It is comprised of several steps of logical observation, measurement, and experimentation, followed by testing and adjusting and ending with drawing conclusions that logically flow from the process. In order to minimize preconceived notions or bias, attempts are made to conduct the exploration in as objective a manner as possible. The scientific method became the discovery pivot around which not only the natural sciences revolved, but virtually all other fields of inquiry. It became and remains the oracle in secular human inquiry. Any field of study which did not fit or did not utilize the scientific method as the primary tool for inquiry was considered flawed in terms of being a reliable source of discovery. Thus, to do something scientifically became and remain through the modern era, the path to respectability. So it should be no surprise that Protestant evangelical hermeneutics, which emerged from the Dark Ages on the back of the Reformation and the Enlightenment, and which by nature disdained judgments made affectively or intuitively, wholeheartedly embraced and continues to embrace a hermeneutic that attempts to establish rules for interpreting scripture that fit firmly and exclusively within a framework of rationality and the scientific method. Nowhere is this seen more graphically than in the condescension of evangelicalism and the secular world toward early Pentecostalism. From the absolute disdain in evangelical responses in newspapers of the time, that is of Azusa Street, time of Azusa Street, that recounted the outpouring at Azusa to the abundance of ongoing evangelical teaching that scorns and disparages modern miracles, speaking in tongues, including accusations of being demonic, the reception of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, and spurning of super, supernatural healings, there is no lack of evidence of the mighty strivings and almost terror to coerce Christianity to fit within a solely rational presentation. It can certainly be argued that an objective first approach to Scripture was and is absolutely necessary. Sanity itself is grounded in the power of reason. History bears out the powerful positive impacts of such preaching of the word from a primarily literalist historical hermeneutic which was an outgrowth of the emerging Protestant hermeneutic. Thousands attended services in eager anticipation of the word. This literal historical approach utilized a research method that fell comfortably within a kind of application of the scientific method to scripture. The level of insight attained from this assiduous attention to detail reached incredible levels. Over time, continuing an unrelenting application of this critical method caused further examination of the writings, the scripture, which led to even further examination and resultant suppositions about the text. This led to efforts to discover the world, quote unquote, the world behind the text. 
or, quote, the world in front of the text, end quote, as well as, quote, world of the text, end quote. Ancient manuscripts were studied and attempts were made to determine just when respective Bibles books were written. Attempts were made to discover who wrote each book regardless of traditional assumptions. All of this was done, this assiduous commitment to being objective and to following the evidence, quote, unquote. Critiquing was divided into such branches as textual criticism, source criticism, tradition criticism, and many other criticisms. Those who hesitated to embrace these conclusions were often condescendingly classified as out of touch with the latest scholarship. Bringing this new level of rationalism to bear on the study of scripture led predictably to questioning anything in the Bible which could not fit snugly within the scientific method. This included, of course, signs, wonders, and miracles. The early, the early 20th century thus saw further application of rationality to scriptural interpretation. This, in turn, led to the present modern period of hermeneutical development. The 1500s to the late 1800s can be characterized as the pre-modern period, that is, preceding the modern and postmodern periods of such development. Mainline liberal Protestant churches led the way to new levels of the submission of scripture to enlightenment-based critique with questions such as, is it rational to believe that the miracles recorded in the Bible were intended to be taken as having really occurred? Or are these myths intended to merely serve as literary examples to increase faith? Or does their being recorded simply accommodate and reflect superstitious beliefs of the time? After all, miracles in general cannot be subjected to the scientific method. Rational tidiness demanded a sweeping out of such messy concepts. Slowly but surely, authority for scriptural interpretation slipped from the church to an increasingly secularized academy. Taken to its final conclusion, a biblical hermeneutic based solely upon the scientific method was proven to be deeply and gravely lacking. The end result has been a deeply misguided attempt to take from the Bible any idea of miracles or the supernatural workings in today's world. A leader in this movement was a man named Rudolf Boltmann, 1884 to 1976. A student of a long list of well-known scholars, he was also a colleague of philosopher Martin Heidegger. His book on form criticism is still used in universities, and his little book entitled Jesus Christ and Mythology provides an introduction to his theology. His program of demythologization of the Bible aimed at a Bible without the unexplainable mysterium of the miraculous. It exemplified the final destination of a Protestant fixation on a hermeneutic based totally on rationality. If Boltman's efforts led to the inescapable conclusion of the death of Protestantism's rational hermeneutic, the Jesus Seminar could be identified as its gravestone. The Jesus Seminar refers to a group of New Testament scholars who gathered in 1985. Their goal was to assess all the sayings of Jesus according to the probability of their authenticity. Decisions were made on each section as to whether Jesus really said it or did it. By a practice of using colored balls to vote on a scale of one to four to determine each saying's authenticity. Finally, rather than scripture judging theologians, theologians assumed the position of authority to judge scripture. Several decades later, it is not unreasonable in retrospect to identify the Jesus Seminar as one of, if not the primary defining moments of the death knell of modernism as it applies to theology. 
Since then, much of the undergirding declarations concerning many of the criticisms have proven to be less than dependable. The, the balloon has deflated, and much of this is now seen for what it really was, overblown assumptions based on spotty and circumstantial evidence that was woefully inadequate in providing sufficient foundation for some of the conclusions derived in spite of being presented with strident proclamation as the latest conclusions of the finest of scholarship. In other words, they were wrong. The reign of a purely rationalist-based scientific method-oriented hermeneutic is over. Because now we live in postmodernism, which is a different thing. It's not just a phrase. It is a different thing. Toward a Pentecostal hermeneutic, the current hermeneutical approach of most academic Pentecostals has been to embrace many of the modern assumptions and practices about hermeneutics from an evangelical community or perspective. After all, these are the writings from which most learned. A significant result has been to contribute to the transformation of numerous traditional Pentecostals back into mainstream neo-evangelicals. The result is an undermining of Pentecostal identity and practice. Some Pentecostals attempt to express themselves with a modernistic hermeneutic, that is the historical critical method. Yet if Pentecostalism desires to continue its missionary objective while keeping in tune with its New Testament ethos, it too must continue to move beyond modernity. A Pentecostal hermeneutical strategy should attempt to continue to forge an alternative path that neither entirely accepts the pluralistic relativism of postmodernism nor entirely affirms the object objectivism of modernism, a pathway that began to be forged in early Pentecostalism. Noel, 2010. The Pentecostal experience and message both hold high distinction of being first foundational, essential, and the ground of all that follows. The search for a full and final return to complete restoration of New Testament Christianity can, if one chooses, stop short of this, stop, that is, stop short of Acts 2, and remain unfinished. However, none can go further than this. This is that. It is that which was preached and practiced on and from the inception of the church and is boldly promised unto you, your children, all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Examples of a Pentecostal hermeneutic. Example number one, the Bible is complete in itself. This is an example of a hermeneutic, a Pentecostal approach to hermeneutics. The Bible is complete in itself. It neither needs nor tolerates any reading back into it of other written materials in order to supposedly complete its revelation. It is totally self-authenticating and not only resists all attempts of outside validation, but also brings such attempts under judgment. The Bible speaks to all things that pertain to life and godliness and is the sole arbiter of Christian orthodoxy. While it is possible for other words to bear revelation, no other writings or words carry authority equal to the Bible. All things essential for human hope and redemption and for Christianity are found therein. So this is an example of an apostolic Pentecostal hermeneutic because other uh, people who go under the appellation of Pentecostal, um, they accept post-biblical writings as being, uh, they may not admit this, but they tacitly accept them as being not only equal to, 
but superior to the Bible when you start superimposing all of those words that try to describe the Godhead over them and then you make the demand which was done in fact you'd be excommunicated if you did not um, adhere and embrace publicly witness that you embraced those things then you would be excommunicated from the church and, and it was all a bunch of post uh, biblical jargon that was put together by not only Tertullian but people after him so um, what we're saying here is that a apostolic Pentecostal hermeneutic is, is when you're studying the Bible, the Bible is supreme and there's nothing equal to it and there's nothing that takes precedence over it and there's no way you need to try to make the Bible fit some post-apostolic thought or writing or anything else. It has to fit the Bible. The Bible doesn't have to fit it. Amen. Now that seems so simple, and, and everyone would aver, they would say, oh yeah, we believe that. Well then how can you believe some of the stuff you believe? How can you, how can you not follow Acts 2.38? How can you not believe the Bible presentation of the Godhead? You're, you're using all kinds, you're making up words and all kinds of stuff that aren't even in the Bible, and then you're saying, I mean, originally those creeds said, if you don't not only believe this, but if you don't, if you don't say it like this, if you don't use these words, and that's still true in many evangelical circles today. And so I would say very respectfully, that's a bunch of hooey. And we don't need to be reticent nor hesitant to say, no way, Jack, that's not where it starts. It starts in the book. Amen. And nothing equals the book. Or Jill. Here's another example of, um, of uh, an attempt to develop a Pentecostal hermeneutic. Everything essential to the definition of the church as the church is found in the Bible. And two or three of our presenters have uh, very, very, in very excellent manner have already mentioned this. But everything essential to the definition of the church as the church is found in the Bible. Likewise, every gift of grace and power provided to the original church remains available for the church in the present and will so remain until the end of the age. Well, when you say that, you're creating a way of interpreting the Bible when you read it. So when you read the Bible and you read about the miracles of Jesus and he says these things and greater than these shall you do, you don't read that and say, well, that doesn't mean that, you know, this can happen in our lives. Instead, when you have a hermeneutic that embraces it all, this is still alive and dynamic today, you say, absolutely, it'll happen today. If I've got faith and believe and trust God and the Holy Ghost environment is there, God will do miracles today exactly like he did them in times past. Amen. Uh, here's another uh, hermeneutical paragraph. The world, natural or spiritual, example number three, has no light within itself. Without light from an outside source beyond itself, it cannot see and know itself and cannot discover its origin, purpose, or universal place. Further, because it has no inherent light, it cannot extrapolate enlightenment out of its existing reality. Light, whether natural, the sun, or spiritual, divine revelation, is a gracious gift that comes unbidden and unmerited from outside of the world's darkness, revealing the world to itself, bringing and sustaining life. The Bible is the source of this spiritual enlightenment in written form. 
Christ is the embodiment of this life in human form. And the authentic church through the infilling of the Holy Spirit is the bearer of this light to the world. So what we're really saying there is the Bible is a sole source that this is written in an objective form where you can receive it. And that it's inviolate and it is self-authenticating. It doesn't need anybody to corroborate it in fact, it. in fact, it brings under judgment anything outside of the word itself that tries to corroborate the word. So um, these are just some of the things, um, uh, brief things. There are many other things that need to be done. There are people, just to try to fill out the information about the subject, um, people say, how come there are not any Pentecostal or in particular apostolic Pentecostal um, uh, hermeneutic books. It's because the hermeneutics of Pentecostals um, are just being written. And uh, 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 the awareness of all of this, actually the real awareness of this uh, actually started around 1980 and some of the first people there started writing in-depth stuff and now there is a group of people, they are Trinitarian, but in writing about the Holy Spirit and about the way the Holy Spirit works and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, uh, they are very close to us. Now, not in the essentiality and, and those kind of things, but in the role of the Spirit in the church. Their, uh, their theology, I don't know about their lifestyle, but their theology uh, would be very close to us. So they are, the approach is through the Spirit, not through something else um, so these people are are uh, are cranking this stuff out and um, I read most all of it up until a year ago there's new stuff out since then I just ordered a new book uh, the other day um, and uh, some of it is in my opinion uh, is extremely insightful and uh, some of it's pretty pitiful but it's sincere attempts to create a hermeneutic but they're so experimental in trying to get a model and so forth that it's really weak but the efforts have uh, have begun there are challenges to creating a Pentecostal hermeneutic because Pentecostals um, believe that Christianity is not just what is in the form of a book and through the logic of the mind but it also believes that there is dynamics. And so Pentecostal, in my opinion, is much closer to the nature of all reality in that it creates a polarity between form and dynamics. And at the base, everything that's real is, is a polarity. And so, and it's true of, of Pentecostalism and it's true of Christianity, biblical, authentic biblical Christianity is that there is form, there is doctrine, there is church government, there is structure. And the evangelicals get that and say, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you can talk about that extensively staying in the, the mode of thinking of rationalism and of the scientific mind, like math, you know, there's structure, there's a pastor, there's people within that body there's members in particular to use Paul's language and and we are growing we are the house of God and houses have structure built upon the apostles and foundation 
all of that um, all of that is the form side but then there is the dynamic side that when Jude says to earnestly, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints he is talking about both form and dynamics the dynamic side is the Holy Ghost could move in here while I'm talking and heal somebody crippled completely without any explanation or understanding by any of us how that occurred in the instant while we're talking here today the Holy Ghost moves in and just and just somebody's faith is ignited and God transforms them and boom here it is and and the the dynamic side is interruptive which does not fit well within rationalism and and logic and the dynamic side which includes emotions includes affection includes love includes relationship all of those things cannot be validated by the scientific method but they are validated by the reality of of what they are that is undeniable and so science would say well no you've got to put it in the test tube you've got to and we would say, no way. So this is part of the, 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 the uh, what is it, head-on wreck between evangelicalism and Pentecostals. Evangelicalism just can't say, oh, yeah, you can get the Holy Ghost fall out on the floor, slobber and talk in tongues and run the aisles and go nuts and, and still make sense. I mean, they just, they, they just, they just can't. They just can't grasp that well in our rational moments it's like when you bring somebody to church uh, you bring the mayor to church and the first thing you do is pray God don't let third grade education 65 year old sister Susie go nuts tonight <laughs> you know what I'm talking about <laughs> yeah and you walk in there and you're saying, oh, God, I hope she has a cold today and had to stay home. <laughs> but nope, there she is on the second row, bouncing like a rubber ball. So, so, so there is this, um, um, it's the way we're made as human beings. And yet, when we get exhilarated in love, None of that matters. Amen. None of that matters. So anyway, um, uh, let me just say this and I'm through. Uh, there's, there's, there's three words here. One of them is orthodoxy. Uh, hermeneutics are put together to make sure our orthodoxy is right. That's the idea behind hermeneutics is that you can define what's orthodox. You can you can figure it out and orthodox means generally correctness of belief um, then there is orthopraxy which is correctness of orthodoxy of action or practice it is the intersection where orthodox belief meets correct practice so we would say well, the orthodox belief of the church would obviously start on the day the church started and it would obviously start with the only man in the history of the universe that the Lord ever gave keys to and the authority to bind and release. 
everything in the heavens or on earth. So that ought to be the man probably that we follow instead of somebody in the 15th century that never had that experience. And I mean, this is logical. This is logical. I mean, wouldn't, doesn't that make sense to you? I mean, the, the day of Pentecost is the first day directives. It is, that makes it not presidential, but precedential. It takes precedent by virtue of being the first. The whole book of Genesis shows us the importance of first, the precedent-setting pattern of first. And, and um, so why would we say today, if somebody says, how do we get saved, why would we take somebody's word, uh, D.L. Moody's word, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, over the Apostle Peter's word, when it was the day and it was the man with the keys and he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for many sins. Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise unto you and your children and all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God's God. Why should we not take, well, I mean, well, logically, what is your problem? What is your issue? So, um, so what, what I'm trying to get across here is that orthodoxy has to include Praxis, orthopraxy, which is where action intersects with correct belief. So repentance cannot be done by discussion with one another. Repentance has a vertical relationship of godly sorrow and a work of the Spirit in our hearts. And receiving the Holy Ghost cannot be done with total objectivity and lack of emotion. You, you, can't, you can't receive the Holy Spirit without your spirit meeting God's spirit. Little s has to meet big S. Spirit, spirit. Because God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. So, so we, well, when they received the Holy Spirit, what did they do? Well, they staggered out of the room and they were speaking in tongues and loud and, and looked like they were drunk. And that's what it was. I mean, so the fact. Now, Luther said what he did, and we use that as an example. And I'm not mad at Luther. I think Luther made a great contribution in history, one of the greatest contributions of, 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 a, of a man that could be made in terms of breaking the back of sociological and political power. And he did it through a use of the word of God. He is the man by the statement, the just shall live by faith, that started the movement towards recognition of individual rights, which has gone into political world, it's gone social world, it's gone religious world. But he actually started the emphasis on the individual. Up to that time, the entire history of the world uh, always focused on the rights of the state. The individual was like, he was like nothing. It was the state. The emperor cut your head off whenever he decided to. He could do it because he was willing to be entertained by cutting your head off. He had a right to do that. The right of kings falls under that, and all this gets bigger and bigger. But, uh, and, so, and so when Luther preached that, but when Luther has a 
misconception of the baptism of the Holy Ghost with speaking in other tongues, which he did have. You have to recognize the man is writing as a man who has never experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So for me, that makes me not get all twisted out of shape when I read what he said, because unless you have experienced this, which is dynamic and not form, unless you've experienced this, you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not being condescending, and I'm just telling you the truth. You don't know what you're talking about. Because this is experiential. And, uh, and a good argument could be made today whether what was first in Christianity, that which was objective and written, or that which was dynamic and experiential. It would be a really good discussion. Is reason or revelation the basis of Christianity? And so that's a topic for another day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Right. I trust that that has stirred some questions in your thinking, and we're looking forward to hearing the questions that you have this morning. I see a few hands already. I want to, before taking those questions, I want to um, just remind us of the, uh, the ground rules on questions. Please keep them on topic to what was discussed in this presentation this morning. Please keep them as concise as possible. I think it helped us uh, when I uh, used a timer yesterday. I think I'll do the same thing today, and uh, we'll limit... Uh, questions to 60 minutes, um, and if, if the question hasn't, 60 seconds, excuse <laughs> we wouldn't get far with a 60-minute question, would we? Okay, 60 seconds, and, uh, and if your question hasn't showed up by that time, then you can decide whether to just let it pass or hasten the question. With that being said, uh, I think we're going to start from Holy Ghost Radio. Our listening audience has questions, and we're going to go straight to the back um, and have one of those questions read this morning. It'll come on at some point, I hope. <laughs> uh, whose time is this on? <laughs> it doesn't count till the mic's on. <laughs> Take him yours, sir. <clears throat> Dr. Wilson, I appreciate that presentation so much. I uh, had two questions, actually, and this is not from Holy Ghost Radio. This is from myself. Number one would be, at any time did the early church at, at its point of emergence operate with a Pentecostal hermeneutic, being that they were synonymously um, and simultaneously, they were fulfilling prophecy, and at the same time, they were getting direct revelation. That's question number one. And then number two, um, would it be correct to say that the entirety of the Word of God is already written in the sense of the fulfillment of a Pentecostal hermeneutic? since Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 15, was God's attempt to correct what had happened in the Garden of Eden. Thank you. So what was the second one again, brother? Second question again. Could it, say, could it be said that the entirety of the Word of God is already written with the purpose of a Pentecostal hermeneutic in mind, 
from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 forward? Um, the first question, I would say yes. There's examples of everything you said, and you wouldn't even have to go past the day of Pentecost to find it fulfilling uh, prophecy. This is that, which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. Um, what was the second question again? <laughs> just, just say a couple words of it, and I'll remember it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is my personal opinion, okay? But I think it could be validated and it would take a, would it be another whole discussion. I believe the entirety of the Old Testament, this is strictly a Pentecostal viewpoint, the entirety of the Old Testament, all of the covenants, all of the uh, global enterprise up until Genesis chapter 12, all of the prophets, the coming of Jesus, the death and resurrection, was all moving towards the day of Pentecost. I don't, I don't think the uh, day of Pentecost was an auxiliary to the death, burial, and resurrection. I believe the death, burial, and resurrection was by intent. It's, of course, it stands alone. It, but it's also in a line of progression that moved towards the day that the Spirit of God that walked with man in the cool of the garden in Genesis 1, in the cool of the day, in the garden, that, that relationship between God and man, the entire enterprise all the way through Scripture is to reestablish the relationship between divinity and humanity and make us his children again. Because on the cross, Jesus actually says, when it, when it looks like nobody's with him and he's all by himself and there's no hope, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring children with me. And you find that in Psalm 22, which are things that looks into the mind of Jesus and tells us what he was thinking and saying and praying on the cross. And maybe even singing. It was a psalm. And so here he is on the cross and, and yet he would, did not forget the artful beauty of what he was doing while he's going through the greasy, nasty, tremendously terrible problems that he's in. You talk about focus. He had focus on the vision. But all of that was moving towards he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. So, now that's a Pentecostal look at Scripture uh, that that evangelicals and anybody in a discussion may say, well, wait, wait, you're downplaying the cross. You're downplaying the resurrection. I'm not downplaying anything. I'm saying the purpose of the resurrection was 1 Corinthians 15, which that we would have that same quickening spirit in us and make us alive unto God again and make us the children of God, which was the ultimate deal was to reestablish the people of God as the children of God, as sons and daughters. Amen. Did that make sense? All right, uh, we've got a question, still a question, right here, and then we'll come across to the far side. Thank you for a wonderful presentation, Dr. Wilson. If I understood correctly, a Pentecostal hermeneutic necessarily involves direct revelation as well as the dynamic components of the moving of the Holy Ghost, both of which, in my opinion, are somewhat subjective. 
So my question is this, what are the specific objective standards that keep the subjective experiences of revelation and the dynamic moving of the spirit in proper tension? Yeah, that's a very good question. The evangelical movement, I, uh, this is my opinion in speaking for them, would say the way you keep all of those dynamic things from violating the objective outline of scripture is you, you forbid them. So there's the dynamic is like, I mean, some of those churches, if you just said amen while the preacher's preaching, they'd probably knock you in the head. They used to. They actually had a big stick with a ball on the end of it. If you didn't do what you said, it usher would come and knock you on the head. So, man, our people would have knots all over their head. So, uh, but the reason that's a very good question is because uh, where there is dynamics, there is messiness. It's like loving a baby. I mean, you love him and then you go, oh, brother. <laughs> so, you've got, uh, there, there's, there's issues with it. There's issues with the hermeneutical side, too. Let me just give you one quick example. Uh, like, doctrine is to be earnestly contended for, and it's only been once delivered. There wasn't a second delivery in 325 A.D. There wasn't a third delivery. Contend earnestly for the faith once delivered okay so I don't care what kind of experience you have where you say well God told me that uh, we're, we're supposed to be doing a new thing now mm. once delivered why are you so adamant on Acts chapter 2 once delivered Why are you so adamant on, on uh, all of the biblical injunctions concerning appearance and why appearance matters and all those holiness standards and all that stuff? Once delivered. And hair and makeup and once delivered. And a lot of other stuff that's not physical. But so um, every experience has to be validated by the written word. The written word is um, inviolable and final authority. And the reason is, is because we on earth are caught between being heaven beings made in the image of God, breath of God, breathed into, and earth beings made of dust or dirt, mud. And so uh, part of the meaning of human comes from humus or earth. So, so we are caught between heaven and earth. Here's, here's an example of the difficulty. Our hermeneutic is that a scripture must be interpreted within its context. But here's where you have to give a little leeway. So you've got 
old sister, whoever was dancing around that's 75 years old in a third grade education, and this session today would be, like it may be for some of you, extremely boring for her. And because she doesn't know anything about this, she's just full of the Holy Ghost. And she may not know much, but she wins people by the light of her testimony. And so the way she reads her Bible, she don't know anything about this, who wrote Psalms and it's divided into five, three main sections, and you can divide it into five. And She don't know that. She don't know anything about the way different poetry is made and written. She don't know any of that. She just opens her Bible, and she starts reading. She may be reading in Isaiah, or she may read in Ezekiel, or she may be reading in Hebrew. She don't know. She's just reading. And she reads a passage of Scripture knowing nothing about the context. And it's illuminated to her mind. I got it. God just spoke to me. So, as spirit people, that messes with our hermeneutics. So how do you judge that? Well, you have to judge that by whether or not what was spoken to her was within the confines of the, of the book. So that means there is no such thing as pure hermeneutics without the community of faith being involved. There has to be a preacher or somebody in her life that she says, well, you know, God told me to follow. He told that guy, he said, go hang yourself and what you do, do quickly. She, Where are you going? I'm going out the door to hang myself. So somebody has to say, no, no, no. That's why the church has to have the gifts that God gave when Jesus ascended. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All the way to the far, my far right. And we've got time for this and maybe one more question. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. That was, uh, that was wonderful. Um, Occasionally, I have referenced uh, Adam Clark, and I was wondering if you would caution against even reading that as a reference. And my second question, would you provide a list of Pentecostal hermeneutics that would be good to read, leaving out the ones you said didn't really uh, meet up to the measure? Um, yeah, I can't remember all the names. Probably one of the most prominent is a guy named Kenneth Archer, but uh, in my book, Apostolic Pentecostal Theology, I do list some of those names. Um, um, which you can get at insigniabooks.com. So wonderful book. Buy two. Just kidding. Uh, so, yep. Uh, right over here. While he's going there, I want to follow up with that last question, what you just said about Kenneth Archer. I believe Kenneth Archer is the one who suggests a Pentecostal hermeneutic um, that speaks to three uh, components, being spirit, uh, word, and community. Do you have thoughts on that model as a framework to work within in a Pentecostal hermeneutic? Yeah, and that is exactly what I just did on that last question, is the, is the relationship between spirit word and community because your Christianity has never lived in isolation there is no such thing as Christianity that is totally individual 
you never can read the, the, in the Lord's Prayer, there's not one singular personal pronoun. It starts with letting you know how you're going to have to live your life if you're a Christian. Our Father. There's no escape. Forgive us. Lead us. So, um, so community is important. Pastors, somebody says, what's the most important? Larry Booker talks about this. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, or the man of God. And he explains why. He says, ultimately, the man of God is the most important. He is God in the present. He is God's presence uh, with directive guidance, which is why men and women of God who are leaders, need, it's such a grave responsibility. Amen. Thank you. Last question. Kenneth Bowe here, Dr. Wilson. Great presentation, as always. You just never miss. I appreciate it so much. My question is relative to page 13, paragraph 1 about uh, 60% down on the paragraph, and I quote your uh, paper, yet if Pentecostalism desires to continue its missionary objective while keeping in tune with New Testament ethos, which is community or concepts, it too must continue to move beyond modernity. I have two questions, why and how. Why must we move beyond that? And if you would extrapolate on this, how can we move beyond that? Well, the first one that we, that we need to move, the reason we need to move, is because modernity is characterized by interpreting Scripture almost solely with the scientific method. All of the commentaries that we buy on the shelves of our Bible bookstores fall into that category. I mean, up until the last few years. Um, and the ones that I read as a young man, the biblical illustrator, the preacher's homiletic commentary, all those old ones, as well as the new ones, unless they are written by Pentecostal people, and even then some of them are caught up in, because that's what was put in their minds is, is a Baptist way of looking at things or a Methodist way of whatever. And so um, I should say in a non-spirit-filled in Pentecostal fashion way, they look at it. Well, um, but our whole deal is, is you cannot find God by the scientific method. You have to have relationship. It's not cognitive first, it's affective first. I mean, psychology says every human being is made of up of cognition, of, of cognitivity, of affectivity, and of psychomotor skills. So the scientific method says you would know God first through cognition. And we would say, no, you know God first through affection, relationship, feeling, sensing. If happily we may per perchance, there's this this drives people crazy that everything is supposed to be black and white, which is why I personally think that in the Western mind, many of us have a little difficulty in grasping some of the things that Scripture says and the ambiguity that is left there that, that, that doesn't make it in our Western minds clear as we want it to be. We have a little difficulty with saying, whereas the Eastern mind has no problem with it, we just say, God, you know, we 
we love you, we believe you. And, and some of our struggles with pain, some of our struggles with how come God doesn't heal, some of our struggles with those are, those are black and white issues. But he said, why don't I have it over here? You know, so you have to let your faith rise above that. Modernity would keep looking for that formulaic solution, which isn't all bad, but the dynamic of the Holy Ghost does not fit in the Enlightenment scientific method matrix. does not fit. That's the reason. How do we do it? I think first is we do it by staying full of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost knows a little more about this than all of us put together. And so when we walk in the Holy Ghost, we become living exemplars of what we're talking about here. If we only figure out how to do this methodologically, then are we really doing it or are we, by the scientific rational method, creating models of how to do it but not doing it? So that's why I say there's nothing except immediate contact with God. Immediate meaning unmediated, straight worship, praise, the living presence is the way to find a viable Pentecostal hermeneutic. And that's what we've been doing for, in the modern times for 110 years now. But to put that down on paper has merit, but to put that down on paper is an enormous challenge. Thank you, Dr. Wilson.